Hello and welcome to the Independent Pharmacy Alliance podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Resnick. This episode is brought to you in part by Independent Pharmacy Alliance. IPA is a trade association and buying group representing 3,700 plus independent pharmacies, leveraging buying power to help pharmacies access pharmaceuticals at the best prices. IPA now offers a comprehensive third-party help desk, legislative advocacy, and continuing education free of charge to members. Learn more today at ipagroup.org. In this episode of the IPA podcast, we will speak with Carrie Lavalette, Senior Vice President, Government Affairs and Director of Advocacy Center for the National Community Pharmacists Association, NCPA. Carrie, thanks for coming on to my podcast. I appreciate it. How have you been? Good, Anthony. I appreciate you thinking of us. We definitely enjoy the partnership we have with IPA over the years, federal and state advocacy efforts. So thanks for thinking of us and having me on today. Before we get started, can you speak a bit about your professional background and how you became an advocate for independent pharmacy and PBM reform? I'd like to ha- have the listeners get to know you and you know find out what is your motivation? What is your passion? How did you get started with independent pharmacy? Sure. Yeah. I mean, if you would have asked me when I was in college, I'd be a lobbyist in Washington, D.C. I didn't ever expect that's where I would end up. I was always interested in government and politics. Went to college as a political science major, et cetera. You know, I came to D.C. and just kind of fell in love with it, moved around a couple of places. I started with the Food Marketing Institute. Many, many of you may know them. They're the trade association for large supermarkets like Kroger, Safeway, et cetera. So I had a little bit of exposure to the pharmacy issues. And then I ended up going to the Boeing company, totally different airplanes and missiles and satellites, but it's all sort of the same job, right? I've, I've always um, been an advocate. You just learn the issues and work them the same way. It's relationship building and you have to become an expert on the issues over time. But what really interested me in NCPA is they're representing independent small business owners. It's not as bureaucratic as other places I've worked because it's much simpler in that respect. And It's actually very refreshing. It's easy to get a meeting on the Hill representing pharmacists because they're just so trusted and everyone likes the pharmacists and it's, they want to hear your concerns because we're so close to the patient, et cetera. So it was, that was appealing to me. And, and, and honestly, I, it's been one of the more rewarding places I've worked at where our members are really thankful of the things we do. I've had thankless jobs before, but our members, like your members, they're all busy running their business, but they know advocacy is important and they just trust us to do it and speak on their behalf. And when they're asked to do a grassroots push on something, they'll do it. Um, But we know they're busy, you know, running their businesses 24 seven. So, but they're just very appreciative of what we do, which is nice. Could you give us an idea about what's the state in Washington, D.C. like? What is the atmosphere like? We're, we see a lot of things on cable news, obviously, but in terms of getting things done and in terms of we always hear about build back better and what that might mean for pharmacy, what is the general atmosphere there? And where do you feel a lot of the legislators, how do they feel about PBM issues? And uh, do you feel that, you know, in this atmosphere, things can actually be accomplished? Sure, sure. And I, just as a little bit of background, you know, it's, I mean, we all know COVID has kind of changed all our lives, but that has really been the focus of the Congress for the last two years has been, how do we keep businesses open? How do we get people vaccinated, keep people safe, all of that. So that has been their number one focus, which it should be, you know, understandably. So we've focused a lot, sort of non-traditional pharmacy issues that we typically don't lobby on. So we've built up some really good relationships with Small Business Administration. So the PPP loans was a 
big deal, the EIDL. We got heavily involved with all of those packages as they went through the Congress, some FMLA issues, all of that. So we pivoted, which is what you kind of have to do in this job is you kind of pivot to what the Congress is working on. Now, I would say it's, it's calming down a little bit. You know, they're trying to do this big infrastructure package and we have new players, right? So there's the new administration. So you have a new president who also puts all the key people in place at HHS, CMS, the agencies that oversee all the pharmacy issues. So those are all new people. So it's building those relationships up again and figuring out where to go. There's also very large freshman classes, again, so a lot of new members of Congress. So encourage your members, if they have a new member of Congress, invite them into their store, get to know them, because it's been a lot of turnover. So it's been a lot of educating and re-educating. But I do think some signs out of this administration have been good on the PBM front. They realize it's a problem. We've already had some discussions with the White House, with FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, we see some positive things happening there, total sea change at FTC, to be honest. My CEO, Doug Hoy, our current president, Brian Caswell, have all had meetings with FTC already. And that's very quick in a new ad- administration to have those things happen. So there's definitely, they see a problem with these mergers that have been allowed to happen. These vertical mergers, you know, like CVS, Aetna, Caremark, you know, that's the worst offender in our, in our minds, just because it's all three with the PBM, the insurer, and the retail pharmacy piece. So we're also talking to DOJ on some of these things too. There's a sea change there as well, where those are the two agencies that kind of oversee these mergers and acquisitions to take a look at them and see if there truly are the anti-competitive practices, which we believe there are. Um, and I'm sure many of your listeners may have submitted comments recently to the FTC on these anti-competitive practices. They talk to us and they're like, get as many of your members to give us examples of what's happening out there. And we've had over 3,000 pharmacies submit comments to the FTC, which is unheard of. Because <laughs> <You know? laughs> they, they aren't the most exciting comments, I will have to admit. But you know that just shows the desire out there of independent pharmacies to get involved and just they're just sick of beating their heads up against the same wall of that agency not wanting to really get involved in these things. So we're hopeful that it's not just lip service and that they're going to move forward on some things that will help the industry. It sounds like from what you're saying, I've read some similar news that FTC, Department of Justice, and the administration, they're starting to really recognize that these mergers of these healthcare giants, like the PBMs, like the insurers, where they're becoming near monopolies, they're really starting to recognize that this is a huge problem when it comes to competition and drug pricing and allowing small businesses to stay in business like independent pharmacies. Yeah, definitely. Well, that's great news to hear. And I think a lot of that happened because of the incredible work that NCPA is doing. I mean, NCPA has been talking about this for years. I've only been doing this for seven years, but that message, it's a complicated one and it wasn't easy to get out there, but it looks like more and more it's getting into the mainstream. I think it's all thanks to the work that NCPA is doing. Carrie, I want to get your thoughts on the implication of Rutledge versus PCMA. NCPA scored a huge victory for independent pharmacy and patients when the Supreme Court ruled that states may regulate ERISA or self-insured plans. A lot of pharmacy owners are really excited about that ruling from the Supreme Court. Finally, the Supreme Court ruled stating that, look, states can and are allowed to regulate these ERISA slash self-insured plans. And could you give us an idea of Where are we going from here? And have you seen any action in the states 
to actually take advantage of the ruling. Yeah. So thanks, Anthony. And that was just a great win for us. Like you said, I mean, it was the first Supreme Court case ever involving PBMs. So early on, we're involved in Iowa before Arkansas even happened in that same circuit, trying to get some laws introduced that we could then move forward. You know, all the stars sort of align there with the state attorney general who was willing to make that case and go to the Supreme Court and unanimous decision. There's a couple other ones kind of in the in the works following that legal wise. So there's PCMA, which is the Trade Association for Pharmacy Benefit Managers. So what they've been doing over the years, as you all know, is they just file suit. They have endless amounts of resources. They know we can't afford to be in every state fighting them. I wish we could. (laughs) So that's their strategy. So it backfired on them in the Arkansas case, going all the way to the Supreme Court. There's a case in Oklahoma, PCMA versus Mulready. That's kind of in the, the infant stages right now, but it's same sort of issue that was in Arkansas where they're challenging regulation of PBMs in the state, basically. And then there's another case in North Dakota, PCMA versus North Dakota, where we've been heavily involved there. Oral arguments just happened last month. So we're going to find out where that lands in a little bit, but we feel good about that one. We feel good about Oklahoma. And then like you asked before, Anthony, has several states, the North Dakota and Oklahoma, the reason they were able to do this is because of the Rutledge case. So we're hoping those two stand. And there's a sprinkling of other states that have done little pieces of this, not like this, as big of effort as Oklahoma and North Dakota, but we're seeing more and more that that's happening and we're taking advantage of it. Some states you know, have very short sessions, so they didn't have as much time to implement that. So this next legislative session will be very important. We'll see a lot more. We're already helping some states kind of get things teed up to bring up in their next session when they start in January. So we're very hopeful there. And, and I'll say PCMA is worried about this. Mm-hmm. They went after us in 18 states saying that independent pharmacies are the reason why I have a high drug cost. Austin in the state capital, Texas, a big billboard right by the Capitol pointing at us, which was paid for by PCMA. So they're worried mm-hmm. if they're going out and spending all that money. So what we're doing is working with state partners like you and other state partners across the country. Your state legislators really take notice of what you guys are saying. And that's been helpful too. The things you guys do in the state helps us federally too. So it's it's been exciting to see. Very busy for my state team tracking all this. They've had a lot. Well, just to let some of the listeners know that on the state level here in New Jersey, we've already seen some of the trickle-down effect from the Supreme Court PCMA versus Rutledge case. Right here in New Jersey, we've had a legislator just a few months ago introduce a bill to start regulating not all self-insured plans, but some self-insured commercial plans. And really, that's just another step in the right direction. The reason that bill was introduced, it was introduced directly as a result of the Supreme Court case, because right after the Supreme Court case, we were getting a lot of questions. What is this? How did this occur? And what are the implications? Does this mean we can finally regulate these plans? And so legislators in the interest of savings, in the interest of patient access to pharmacies and prescription drugs, they said, you know what, maybe we should introduce a bill, since the Supreme Court is allowing us to finally regulate these plants that have so much control over the patient and the type of prescriptions that they're taking. So even on the small level here, we're already seeing some of those results where the legislators have heard and are taking interest. Yeah, that's great. I mean, there's stories like that across the country. And that's why I think next year will just be even 
better for us on the state level. You know, in terms of the Rutledge case, after the case, was there any discussion from the administration about the Rutledge case? Have you had any phone calls with the Biden administration about the case and any other top officials asking, inquiring about it? Yes, it's definitely helped bring attention because, you know, as you know, Anthony, I'm sure when you've you're lobbying in your state, it's not everyone knows what a PBM is. They just kind of fly under the radar. And once you explain to them what is going on, they're like, how is this even possible? Just that in and of itself, people are like, who's PCMA in the Supreme Court case? Who do they represent? You know, so it was a it was eye opening, I think, for a lot of them. And there is a desire to rein them in. Like I said, you know, the work with FTC and others, that's that didn't just happen. They all took notice of that case and with the unanimous decision, too. I mean, that just made it even more beneficial to us. Sure. One of the more popular questions that I get from pharmacy owners when they call, they ask Anthony, is there a bill in Congress that'll take care of Durfee's? That's the biggest question I get. And there actually is one that NCPA is spearheading. There's a Senate bill and a House resolution bill in Congress right now. It's called the Pharmacy Dur Reform to Reduce Senior Drug Costs Act. And I guess the simplest explanation for this bill is, you know, most of the listeners are probably pharmacy owners, and we all know the difficulty that these retroactive fees have, not just on your bottom line, but also on your Medicare Part D patients, especially when it comes to their out-of-pocket drug costs. But this particular bill, what it would do is it would require that these DER fees at the very least, would only be assessed at the point of sale. So you wouldn't have to pay for it. Term would be retroactively weeks, months, years later. It would all be part of the fees that would be assessed at the time, at the point of sale. And that way you would know your true reimbursement rate. And Carrie, could you give us an update on that bill? And could you explain to us more? And I think this is really important for the non-pharmacy listeners to know. How would it reduce drug costs for senior citizens? Sure. You explained it really well. (laughs) Actually, you did a really good job. You know, like you said, it would be at point of sale. So there'd be some planning there where you have some certainty as to what, you know, you're getting dispensing the drug. You, ha- you have an idea if you're going to make money or lose money, right? Like now you just, you don't know. So that is essentially what the, the bill would do. As you know, Anthony, we've been lobbying on this a long time. We've gotten close to the finish line several times on this issue with either administration taking action through rulemaking, through HHS and CMS on it. I should back up for a second too, and just say, we had that effort. We we're very close to the finish line. It didn't get across. We had it in a proposed rule, which is very hard to get. We got it in there to make cross finish line. We had it in the last Congress in the Senate Finance Committee, which is a very powerful committee that controls all the pharmacy issues have to go through that committee. We had it in a bill that both the chairman and the ranking member supported. They're both on board. It just was bogged down with other things in the bill that others didn't like. So that's also hard to do. And is that because that bill, that was an overall prescription drug bill? Right. And this was just a portion of what right. was in that big exactly exactly you know ncpa made the difficult decision the beginning of this year to file a lawsuit against hhs on the dir fee issue the reason we did that is we looked back and we're like we had a supportive administration we've got it in a proposed rule couldn't get across finish line we had a congress you know senate finance committee that willing to do it they couldn't get across finish line we knew we had a new administration and a new congress we're gonna have to start over so we made the difficult decision because, as you know, these lawsuits can take years and are very, very expensive. 
but we made that decision to sue HHS, which at the time it was Secretary Azar. Now the Biden administration has had to take it over as, um, so now it's HHS versus Becerra. We're waiting on that. We could hear on that any day. The earliest we would have probably heard was mid-September. So that could come out any day. But along with the lawsuit, we obviously didn't stop our other efforts, right? Like you mentioned the bill. So we have the bills in Congress. We're still working those, lobbying on those. We're still talking to current HHS. There's probably um, a proposed rule coming out that's a typically Part D, because SDIR is only in Part D. That could come any day too. So we're hearing there may be something in that, but we've seen this movie before. So we're, <laughs> we're working, you know, all three angles. Sure. Keep it moving forward. So that's sort of where that is now. I would also say the bill you've referenced, the DIR bill, is also in play for this current, you know, I'm using the geeky DC <laughs> terms, but this reconciliation package that they're talking about related to the infrastructure big bill that they want to try and get passed before the end of the year. And it is in play. DIR is in play, we've been told by committee staff, but this whole package could kind of fall apart. But it is in play, which is key. So they've realized what's happened, unfortunately, on the DIR fee issue is we kind of got caught between a tennis match between the administration and Congress. Congress is like the administration can fix it. The administration's like, no, Congress has to fix it. So we get kind of in this tennis match. It's, I know, and it's frustrating for everyone, but I do feel like we're making progress. I mean, between the legal front, the administrative and the congressional front, we're in play in all three right now. So we're definitely in play. It's just if it rises to the level of the other things they're they're dealing with. Carrie, just on the, the topic of the lawsuit, lawsuits are very expensive. And I was actually very excited to see the lawsuit against the uh, Health and Human Services because it pinpoints to them the importance of this issue for independent pharmacy and for independent pharmacies patients. Uh, but lawsuits are very expensive. And one thing I wanted to get across to anyone that's listening, especially the pharmacy owners, is that NCAPA's resources are not limitless. Is there any way that IPA members, or for that fact, any pharmacy owners can help NCPA with the lawsuit? Yes, yes. So we have, NCP has a legislative legal defense fund that we use in these cases. Perfect example of where that money was put to good use was the Supreme Court case. We spent a lot of money. We filed an amicus brief and all the legal work done up to that point in Arkansas. And you know the cases that I mentioned in North Dakota and Oklahoma that we're spending resources on as well were PCMA's filing. So yes, our legislative legal defense fund can take any, there's no limits on the source or not like a political action committee where you have limits and things like that. It's unlimited. Some of it can be written off for tax purposes, not all of it. It's, you know, get the advice of your tax advisor on that. Sure. But I, you know, some of it can be, and it can be used with corporate funds. So you can use business funds to support that. Um, and there's information on our, our website, ncpa.org's website. But yes, we've been successful and a lot of people did help with the Supreme Court case, but We've kind of emptied the coffers and now we're at it again with the DIR lawsuit. It's like one after another recently. Sure. I just want to encourage all the pharmacy owners who are listening, please consider donating to the Legal Defense Fund. These cases are not cheap and they're not easy. If NCPA can get a win with this case, everyone, 
every independent pharmacy and all their patients will share in that victory and get a win. So I encourage everyone to support NCPA and the Legal Defense Fund. And we'll uh, post a link to it uh, where oh, people thank you. can make a donation as well. Yeah. One last question I wanted to ask you about the bill that's in Congress right now in terms of reducing drug costs for seniors. We always hear about how seniors are paying the majority of their costs when they enter this particular phase in Medicare called the donut hole. So a lot of seniors wonder that there's some points during the year where they're paying a lot more than they usually pay. Could you Mm -hmm. explain to him what that donut hole is and how DERFIs play a part in getting seniors faster into that donut hole when they may encounter those higher costs? Because I think it's really important for the non-pharmacy listeners to understand how does this pharmacy fee impact the actual out-of-pocket cost for the senior when they're in Medicare Part D? Yeah, sure. And I'm sure many of your members understand this more than most is years ago, you wouldn't have patients in the donut hole until the fall. Now, depending on the cost of the drug, what the patient's taking, they can hit it in February, March now. It's just crazy. And then obviously, you know, the patient has to pick that up when they're in the donut hole. Once they're through the full benefit, the government takes on most of it. And so not only because DAR fees are not assessed at point of sale, the patient's hitting it faster because they're going through the benefit quicker. So it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's really kind of the sickest patients paying the most for the benefit, right. you know, it's, it's really kind of sad. So just in general too, the, the numbers, it's, it took NCPA a while to get these because it was all just sent to CMS and they have the data and no one would ever tell us what these were. And then recently when the Biden administration had to release their budget, we saw that the DIR fees grew 91,500%. So that's 91,500. So it's not a typo. And that's between 2010 and 19. Right. Of that 91,5, that same percentage, that's $9.1 billion. Wow. So it grew from, you know, if you go back to that 2010, it was 229 million. And now it's, it was 9.1 billion just last year in DAR fees that were charged to pharmacies. Part of this is this cost sharing in the Part D program, right? You pull the string here, it goes there, then someone's paying some more there. And these are all government numbers. So this isn't our numbers at all. So I'm using all government numbers. So if the legislation we talked about or a administrative fix to putting it at point of sale, that would save $9.2 billion to Part D patients over 10 years. So what that equates to is roughly... 200, 250 per senior a year. I mean, that's a lot for a senior that would, they would save at the pharmacy counter. So it's just grown out of proportion. I mean, for what it is and CMS knows there's a problem, but they just feel like their hands are tied to fix it, but that it really does affect those patients. And I'm sure, you know, you hear stories all the time from your members where they have patients who come in and they're like, I can't afford the full prescription. And so they're not adherent. It causes other problems and it's a tough situation. I actually had a pharmacy owner who was giving away insulin for free to a patient because they lost their job. They didn't have access to insurance and he was just giving it away for free because this patient had no other options. And that's, you know, one story. I have many stories that we hear and here you have a drug that's been on the market for decades 
And all of a sudden the patient can't afford it. Or you have seniors who live on fixed incomes and they enter this, you know, it sounds friendly, the donut hole, but it's anything but. And once they enter this phase of the donut hole, they can't afford their medications. And you could have a senior citizen who's taking three, four, five medications, some even more than that. And pharmacy owners see this on a daily basis. They see the struggle. But what's really striking is the numbers that you just gave out. Nearly $10 billion of possible savings that could go back to senior citizens. This obviously has to be something that, you know, the policymakers recognize. This is a huge number. What do you feel the reaction has been from some of the policymakers when they hear these types of figures? It's astronomical. And when you actually tell them a number of an individual pharmacy owner now, it's depending on your patient mix and, you know, what plans you're in, et cetera. But it's way north of 100000 a year for a typical pharmacy that they're paying in DIR fees. When you put it that way, that's a, that's a, another pharmacist that could hire. That's maybe two techs and a delivery driver or whatever, you know, that's other resources they could use. And when we put that in perspective, I think that's been the most persuasive is, is one, the patient number, like you said, that it's, these savings could go back to the patient. And two, this is how it's affecting the small business. I mean, and you can't plan for it. Sure. So they're just going up. So if, if you know, they're going to call back a hundred thousand every year, you can plan for that, but it just keeps going up. So it's tough. Carrie, that's an excellent point. These are funds that pharmacy owners can put towards hiring more pharmacists, more staff to provide COVID-19 vaccinations, to provide COVID testing, especially, you know, while we're in a pandemic. And right now we're hearing about a lot of staff shortages. Obviously, pharmacies are trying to do the best they can to make sure they can provide all the critical shortage uh, services to patients. But I think that's an incredible message that this will allow more pharmacies to provide more services to patients during this crisis that we're going through at this point. Yeah, no, that is a good point, Anthony. And we do use that as well, because we do have an ear. They want to know right now, because we have been so successful in helping with vaccinations and testings that testing that they want to hear from us. They want to talk to us. They want to see how we're doing. So we are hoping that pays off in the long run to try and get this over the finish line. But that's, that's a good point. Carrie, I, I want to talk about one more thing before we wrap up. I always think that when groups come together and form the coalitions, there's no other better way to win in advocacy than when you have a good coalition. And NCPA recently helped form a coalition to reform PBM practices that jeopardize patient care and public health. And there were some really impressive groups that were within this coalition. And could you tell us a little bit more about it and how it all came together and what is this group doing together to promote PBM reform? Yeah, sure. And it's it's very new. So it, we just launched it last month. And the impetus behind this is we've always been, we as pharmacy have always been talking about these issues. The Supreme Court case and all this state efforts, it's led us to talking to other partners that are affected in the supply chain, whether it be doctors, other patient groups, other parts of the pharmacy sector, not just independent pharmacy. And we found like, look, we all have a list of grievances. And if we band together, like you said, as a coalition, how much more could we do, right? To, to shine a light on what the PBMs are doing. So we partnered with the AIDS Healthcare Foundation. They run a lot of Ryan White clinics where they come at it from the patient angle. 
there's the Community Oncology Alliance where they're getting hit with DIR fees, but they also have the patient angle with the high cost of those drugs um, in the oncology world. The rheumatologists, so Council State Rheumatology Organizations, so the physicians, so we kind of have the physician angle there. FMI, who I mentioned before, the Food Marketing Institute, so they run pharmacies and you know the larger chains. And NFIB, the National Federation of Independent Business, which we work with a lot, especially when all the PPP things were going on and EIDL loans and all that through the Congress. So an NFIB comes at it from the employer angle. They have a hard time as small business owners negotiating for the own employees' prescription drug plans. So they're just as disenfranchised as everyone else. And they have had it <laughs> as well. So like I said, it just started. We kind of put out some guiding principles that we could all agree on patient choice of pharmacy, patient access, lowest out-of-pocket cost medication, fair and transparent reimbursement to, to pharmacies, full transparency for employers and pay plan sponsors. I mean, a lot of this is if some of these payers knew what was going on and how they're also getting ripped off by PBMs. So we're trying to get a larger umbrella where we can really get some things done. So the real shared goal is to, you know, is patient access to foreign medication. And it's just the beginning. We're going to ask others to join. To engage in education, grassroots, the more you get this out there, we're just building to our army, basically. So we're really excited about it. You'll hear more, more to come. But like I said, it just just launched. So we're still kind of in the recruitment stage and figuring out all the different things we want to do. Yeah, I, when I saw it, I was really happy to see it. I like the diversity of all the groups involved because you have so many different types of voices and it's all coming from the patient care point of view and also the small business owner point of view. Access to prescription drugs, lower costs for small businesses and their employees. So I'm really excited to see where this advocacy group is going to go. I I have a good feeling about it. So Carrie, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. For more information and to learn more about the National Community Pharmacy Association, go to ncpa.org. And for more information on the PBM Reform Coalition, go to pbmfacts.com. Carrie, thanks a lot for joining me. I really enjoyed our conversation. And I hope people reach out to NCPA or are listening to learn how they can get involved and how they can help. Thank you, Anthony. We really appreciate you including us. And again, enjoy the partnership we've had with IPA over the years and continue to. And working together, we can get some things done. So appreciate you taking the time. Absolutely. And we look forward to working with NCPA. Thanks for listening to the Independent Pharmacy Alliance podcast. This podcast was made possible by the Independent Pharmacy Alliance and the president and CEO, John Gene Polo. It was produced and edited by Zach Stone with music by Marcus Way. For previous and future episodes, check out ipagroup.org. Thank you very much. Bye for now.